Welcome to The Forest Garden, a podcast for gardeners who want to upgrade their landscapes into biodiverse food forest systems. On today's episode of The Forest Garden, we have the pleasure to be hosting Lisa Fernandes, founder of The Resilience Hub, based in Portland, Maine. Beginning around 2005, The Resilience Hub has been organizing community events and ultimately building strong, resilient communities. They host workshops, run permablitzes and permaculture design courses, and are just a really amazing organization all around. Tune in today to learn about how it all got started and how to create a similar organization in your own community. Stick with us. So I guess we should just get to it. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us today. The best way to sort of start off probably would just be to sort of introduce yourself and maybe talk a little bit about, you know, how, what your entry point was into permaculture or resilient systems, and then segue into how your personal exploration of of that turned into working with or creating, I guess, founding the Resilience Hub. So, yeah, I am... Lisa Fernandes, and uh, I am joining you from just outside of Portland, Maine, where I live with my family, and uh, grew up mostly in the Boston area, actually. My ancestors were immigrants to the Boston area from England and Ireland, Scotland and Portugal, and also Acadian French and, and and Scottish from Prince Edward Island. So I always was surrounded by family members who had gardens and I feel like a big part of my story growing up was this sense of uh, wherever you were in the world in the city in the suburbs out in the country you should try to grow some food so I feel like even though I haven't always lived in places where I could uh, have a garden of my own I always aspired to do that. So even when I was in rentals or apartments or whatever, would be composting and gardening. And I confess to loading my compost into a pickup truck to move to my next apartment more than one time. So definitely have been involved in this for for quite some time. Also studied medicinal plants for several years with uh, one of my wonderful teachers, Deb Soul, at Avena Botanicals on the coast of Maine started studying with her in in the late 90s. So had been a gardener, loved to cook and studied medicinal plants. And then also my first introduction to the idea of permaculture, the concept of permaculture came in the early 90s while I was traveling in a tiny little village in the west of Ireland of all places. And there was a, a permaculture uh, aficionado in that village and kind of learned about composting and gardening and got really intrigued. Came back to the States and ended up in Olympia, Washington at the Evergreen State College uh, for, for a graduate degree. And I worked full-time for the city, but my very first official permaculture education moment was a, was a workshop, a two-day workshop held at Evergreen. The instructor was Larry Santoyo from California, who came up and and led that workshop. That really kind of set the hook for me. And even though I didn't necessarily do 
permaculture related things for my livelihood or my work for quite some time, it was always a part of my life to grow food in that way and to be learning plants and to be in relationship to the ecosystems where I was living. So yeah, ended up back East, did a bunch of different jobs to pay off the student loans as you do. And then in 2005, there was this one particular moment where I was back visiting friends in Ireland and they were helping to organize a conference that summer, June of 2005, called Fueling the Future. The subtitle of that was The Challenge and the Opportunity of Peak Oil. I won't bore you with that tale other than I met David Holmgren there and Richard Heinberg and a number of other permaculture practitioners because really the event was framed as like, yes, we are in a crisis moment and climate change was part of that and lots of other lots of other pressures. But it was also framed as an interesting opportunity to consider how we might remake our communities. And my history of gardening and composting and medicinal plants and permaculture really came right up to the surface. And I came back from that event and started the first kernels of what would become the Resilience Hub. So that was sort of the the trajectory that led to this moment in late 2005, before Facebook, before social media really existed in any substantial form, set up a meetup.com group in Portland, Maine, and the rest is history. It's pretty interesting. You're not the first person to tell me sort of a kind of origin story around peak oil and around sort of the doom and gloom kind of idea of the time of there being a lot of sort of depressing feelings and conversations happening about, you know, this is our reality and and how do we Mm -hmm. fix that? And maybe permaculture sort of emerging from that in a way. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think for me, I felt really strongly like permaculture and all that it represented, whether you use the word permaculture or not, is is almost a moot point, but but I'll, I'll use it for, for now. Permaculture represented an opportunity to do something that I felt like we needed to do as individuals and as neighborhoods and communities, which is kind of ride two horses at once, which is always a challenge and a little bit crazy making. And what I mean by that is how do we reskill as communities, how do we find or rediscover patterns and practices that allow us to create really beautiful and wonderful and abundant ecological outcomes for how we live on the world? At the same time, they help us to hedge our bets against really dark times and difficult things happening in the world and navigate you know, challenges like climate change, peak oil, the disintegration of any vestiges of democracy, all of the things that are now truly coming to fruition, I think, with even more urgency. So I stand by that feeling of permaculture and and all the related patterns and practices that kind of get lumped in there being great for both, like getting through hard times, as well as creating amazing outcomes. You know, if those hard things never did manifest themselves, like what would be the downside of having amazing ecological culture? in our neighborhoods and towns and places where we live. So, so yeah, I still feel really strongly about that. And so for me, living in Southern New England in central Connecticut, something that has been a little bit frustrating or maybe just something that I need to work harder on is finding that community of people who are just really like-minded 
and getting together and making the change, you know, in our neighborhoods. So mm. I guess I'd like to know how, you know, how the Resilience Hub got started, how that initial meetup group really kind of jumped off. What was what was the point that people started getting together? Maybe maybe what was the like what was the first event that you can think back to that really drew a big crowd or how did uh, how did things get started? Yeah, that's a great question. And I feel like I should be totally transparent and say that for the first, you know, three or four years, this was almost like a hobby, something that I did after hours, a few partners in crime in the community that were also interested in these kinds of things, not a ton, you know, maybe between eight and 12 people that were really into this kind of stuff, some of whom I met through maybe some of the peak oil events that had been happening in 0506, some that I had met through Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association, MAFCA, others that I just knew in the community that were interested in gardening or medicinal plants. So it was a pretty small cohort to start. You know, it was just, it was kind of like a club, like a permaculture club. Let's learn together. There was no ego in it. There wasn't a, hey, I'm leading a new group and I want to find people who think like I thought, I think. It was more like, I'm really curious. I'm interested in these things. I can certainly learn on my own, but it's way more fun to learn and do with other people. And spoiler alert, you get a lot more traction in a community when you do things together. So there was that sense of like, all right, how can this go from being me to we? And that was an ethos, I think, that stuck around for the entire life of the Resilience Hub, as long as I was involved in it, and I think still to this day with the new gang that are involved in the hub. So I think that's exciting. To get going, I think we did benefit from the fact that the Meetup platform was really the only game in town. There weren't, you know, half a dozen social media platforms vying for people's eyeballs all the time. It is a little bit of a different landscape now in terms of getting the word out and being visible. But using Meetup in 2005, 6, 7, 8 was a completely different thing because anyone that happened upon Meetup and had any interest in anything like gardening, plants, composting, water collection, any of those kinds of topics would find the Meetup group quite easily. So, you know, I think we kind of did benefit from that. We were able to leverage there search engine optimization, if you will, to be found by local people in this region. So a few of the things we did to get going were, I would say, pretty low investment, easy to organize, like movie nights, getting together at someone's house and watching a movie and having potluck food, field trips. Uh, Hey, let's go visit this garden together. Who wants to go? Okay, here's the details. And we meet up and carpool together. The other thing that we did for the first few years, which was really, I think, transformative for a lot of us is, you know, we didn't have a space. We weren't even called the Resilience Hub yet. We just said, let's meet at a different member's home every month. And what we'll do is we will we'll meet and we'll do a walk around of their property, not in a way that we're judging their gardening or anything at all. It was a completely judgment-free zone. But it was like almost like a group design conversation where they would talk about what they were interested in doing and the wisdom of everyone there was valued and shared to give that person some cool ideas. Then we always shared food together. There was always some kind of a potluck. 
I'm a strong believer in the glue that is created by sharing food and extending honest hospitality to everyone. So, you know, for a large number of years, gosh, I think it was like at least 2005 to maybe five or six years, we had monthly gatherings, the lion's share of which were at people's homes. And we just got to know each other and build trust and relationships and connectivity that was the fuel. So it wasn't finding like-minded people. It was creating the conditions, the welcoming and hospitable and fun conditions within which people just found each other and felt valued by those experiences. So the early days were very much like, yeah, movie nights and occasional guest speaker. You know, at some point we should talk about the first work parties because I think that was, those were the nuggets that led to the Permablitz program. So we can we can certainly get into that if you want to as well. I think that's exactly what we should do. But just as a quick aside, I'm curious, were the movie nights like centered around sustainability or, you know, these sort of ideas? Or was it just a, because I mean, personally, I, I have a hard time sort of finding an abundance of these films out there. Or was it just sort of more of like a friendly, like, you know, let's get together and watch Forrest Gump? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. No one's ever asked me that before. They were always about sustainability, permaculture, gardening topics, and they start the, the attendance started getting bigger and bigger to the point where we would get like large lecture halls at local colleges donated to us to show the movies because we'd have like a hundred people show up. But they would be things like who killed the electric car. And uh, in the early days, some of the peak oil movies and some of the, you know, really crappy quality Bill Mollison films from the early 90s and some of the films about soil that started coming out. There were some great films about genetically modified organisms that came out in agriculture in general, some about energy we did a lot with like Garbage Warrior, which of course is Mike Reynolds and Earthships and really gets at some philosophical questions about how democratized buildings and shelter can be or should be uh, in a culture such as ours that is high, pretty highly regulated when it comes to buildings for health and safety reasons that I think are well-intentioned. But so anyway, it was it was everything from buildings, energy, growing, soil. We saw a couple of films about Amish communities, which led to some fantastic, complex conversations about community. But what happens when community includes, you know, misogyny and hierarchical power structures? <laughs> so none of these were sort of like, we're endorsing this film, but here's something interesting and there would be facilitated discussion and then potluck and food and all the other things like that. So, yeah. And, and you know, we do happen to live in Maine where Mofka has been around since, you know, the, the early 70s. And so there's a, a, a wealth, as there, as there really is in all the New England states, a wealth of people who have been doing amazing things for a, a long time. So that gave us a bank of potential guest speakers. So. Cheryl Wixon came and did a presentation about how to do root cellaring and John Bunker on heritage uh, apples and, you know, on and on. It's just, it was as easy as looking at who were the presenters at the last common ground country fair and, and making invitations and figuring out how to compensate them and take care of them to come be with our group. So guest speakers in the winter movies in the winter. And then 
outdoor things that led to ultimately the work parties and permablitzes later. It sounds like you have the master list of films to watch with your sustainably minded friends. I'm I'm very uh, I'm, I'm very interested. So yeah, I guess we should just move on and and sort of get into you know how those work parties started to happen. It sounds like the potluck and the food is a really big part of it. Yeah, I would advocate for radical hospitality. And I'm a big fan of a lot of the practices that come out of the art of hosting community. That might be something to to flag for listeners. Art of hosting is really just an open source set of practices and patterns for convening people that really honor, you know, their humanness and, and value what everyone brings to the table. And I say that because that really influenced how we even started organizing the first work parties and the pattern that made, I think, Permablitz is so successful for, for many years. Something I will say is that I think this came from another one of my teachers, Dave Jackie, who you'll, you, you may know, and I might get the paraphrasing wrong, but it was along the lines of like events are the best teachers, or you could say experiences are the best teachers. So, you know, having a book club or a movie night or something like that is one thing, but actually doing shared work together with other people is the most transformative thing. So after a few years of getting to know each other, and this wasn't a clicky thing either, it was definitely open to whoever wanted to come. But after a few years of visiting each other's homes and learning techniques and visiting, going on field trips and all of that stuff, we realized, well, what if, you know, over the course of, of the, the growing season or whatever, we could go from one person's home to the next and help them make something happen. And we started doing that really in like 2006, seven. In the early days, we experimented with it, but really hit our stride in 2008, nine, to the point where it would be like half day and full day work parties at different members' homes that we would that we would organize as an event on like a Saturday or a Sunday. And always, you know, welcoming, opening circle, Everyone is invited to to share what's up for them, why they're there, what they what they're bringing. Everyone's valued no matter what. Coffee, tea, snacks, potluck, lunch. You're learning something. Uh, you're doing a cool project, and you're contributing your time in a mutual aid kind of a way, so that you know that um, you're you're kind of building up the social capital bank with your community. And that could very well come to your house next time kind of thing. It wasn't that transactional, like you do this and maybe we'll come to your house. But it was just a spirit of let's help each other do this. And it started out with just like one or two very discreet things. Like I remember going out to Tom and Lee's house in Gorham, Maine, about a half hour from Portland in 2008. They had a south facing hillside and it needed to be marked on contour, swale, so that they could plant a berry orchard. And it was an opportunity for all of us to learn how to mark on contour with A-frames, use mattocks, make swales, plant, you know, perennial fruit-bearing crops. And it was contagious, you know. Anyone who came felt like, oh my gosh, I've been longing for this practical way to make make change in our community that's fun and enjoyable and I feel valued. So... That grew into permablitzes, and we had our first big one in 2010. And for any listeners who don't know what that is, obviously it's a big work party. We did not invent this idea. Permaculture communities around the world have been doing these or even calling them different things than permablitzes. But 
it's essentially a big one day makeover with up to 50 volunteers, a lot of organizing and planning and designing in advance to stage up materials. But after the first big one we did in 2010, we actually dedicated some staff because at that point we were the Resilience Hub. We were an actual entity. We were able to raise a little bit of money from New England Grassroots Environment Fund and other donors. And we started doing like one a month for the whole growing season. And it was so exciting. Skill building, learning, community building. People who had gone through permaculture design courses could be team leaders and really stretch their own leadership muscles and service muscles. So yeah, private homes to start, but then expanded into community spaces like helping cultivating community, build a community garden or helping do some plantings at Mount Joy Orchard or whatever needed doing. It was an exciting time. And I think it created relationships in our community here in, in Maine that uh, still are strong to this day. I mean, some of my best friends in the world have come from, from those years of the Resilience Hub and working shoulder to shoulder to transform the land for gardening and rainwater collection and backyard chickens and all that good stuff. So for our listeners who might not be totally aware of what a permablitz is, all of these events were free, right? Yeah, no, it was just, this was no cost to attend. It was just bring yourself in whatever capacity, whatever ability you have. You don't have to have any skills. We convene at such and such an hour for coffee, snacks, and an opening circle where we lay out the work of the day, see who's there. We break into work teams. You know, one group of five people may go dig a frog pond. One may sheet mulch, you know, a lawn to turn it into garden beds. You may be installing gutters and a rainwater collection system. Or in some cases, we even installed solar panels. We had a couple of solar installers in the group that would volunteer their expertise. So anyway, it was a variety of things. And then we'd reconvene for lunch and then people would go back into projects and finish those up together. And I confess more than once it bled over into some evening festivities and celebrational beverages. (laughs) But, you know, that's why we do what we do is because we want to create a world that's actually way more fun than the alternative. So for those that, that enjoy that kind of thing, there's hard work, but there's also celebration and and a really good time with other people. How often during these events would you, you know, you talked about the community and building friendships out of it. It mm. sounds like that was a really, really important part in terms of meeting people who, you know, have the same sort of ideals as you. How often was it somebody who was a complete stranger who then ended up being a friend by the, the end of the day? Like a lot of the time, honestly. And, and because people would come back, you see. It wasn't just like... It was very rare that someone would be like, show up at one event and you'd never see them again. And this might be one of the organizing principles that would be of interest to some listeners. And that is, even though people RSVP and show up based on the advertised content of an event, like learn how to sheet mulch or learn how to build a rainwater collection system, like that's the technical, tangible content. They stay engaged and keep coming back because of the quality of how they're made to feel. Are they valued? Are they welcomed? Are they absolutely supported to be there regardless of their abilities, whether they know anyone? You know, everyone is welcome to be part of these sorts of events. And so, yeah, content drives attendance, but 
the experience, the feeling of how, how they feel as a person participating has people coming back. So yeah, some people came once, but, but then we'd all get to know each other. I mean, there were some people came to every single permablitz for like five years, even though I might not have seen them in the last couple of years because of the pandemic, I could call them up tomorrow and be like, Hey, how's your daughter? So-and-so and your son, so-and-so and what happened with this job? And like, we just all got to know each other. Now that might sound horrible to someone who's more of an introvert or you know, more shy or a bit misanthropic. And I can understand that as well. I've got a fair dose of that myself. But even no one was ever required to engage socially in any way they didn't want to. So even quiet people, shy people, they were just valued and they could come back, you know, and everyone could come back. And so, so yeah, there were, there were people who got to know each other over many years and there's no shortcutting relationship building and trust building. You just have to put in the dirt time. And when you get the right people together and you start building trust and set the table, magic happens. Things like Mountjoy Orchard, people meet who need to meet in order to make things happen, like Mountjoy Orchard, like the Portland Maine Tool Library, like the permaculture design courses we ran at Mofka. Like it was only because of those emergent developments, you know, two and two equals more than four when you put those conditions together in a community, I find. No, that all sounds incredible. So in terms of the work that the hub would do, something that I'm, mm-hmm. uh, that I'm interested in is sort of, uh, you know, public landscapes and private landscapes. It mm-hmm. seems like what you guys were creating is something along the lines of that, like the agrihood movement, you know, like the taking people's front yards and transforming them into spaces that created an abundance of tree cro- food crops or what have you. Did you find at any time that it was easier to address private landscapes where somebody owns the land versus public landscapes, or, I mean, I'm sure there was plenty of renters who were involved in the, in the group, that sort of issue of, you know, owning the land that you work on is in my mind, always sort of a a challenge here. So I'm just interested in what you have to say about that. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a, that's a great, that's a great topic. And I have some I have some compli- complicated thinking about that, but I will say that in the early days of doing this, we did make a pretty deliberate decision to at least start, we knew it wouldn't always be this way, but to at least start with what we could do most easily in order to build our own skills together. And that was never to say that it was the only way it should be or the right way it should be for any given community. But for us, it was like, look, this is something we can do now. We can work on each other's, you know, places where we live. It happened to be mostly homes that people owned in all different kind of income brackets around Portland. And let's at least start from there and start getting the skills, having experiences, having some examples that we can point to. And then as we started doing more of these, we had the opportunity to kind of go to the next tier, which is not quite totally public, like in the sense of Mountjoy Orchard being on city of Portland land, but partnering with cultivating community or other groups that had some sort of stewardship role over some place, like building new community gardens up on the eastern prom of the Portland Peninsula. If anyone's visiting Portland, Maine, and you go up onto the eastern prom overlooking the Atlantic Ocean near the tennis courts, you may well find the community garden in America with the best view in the world. (laughs) 
so like we did that as this massive community event on what is public land, but it was stewarded by another organization that we had, we had been building relationship with for quite some time. They had their specialties. We had our specialties. Again, no ego in the game. It was like, okay, what's the synergy? How can we work together to make this stuff happen? So, so that would be one of the ways we started like when we would teach at Mafka Mafka's campus in Unity we would you know do some projects on on their land so we were going from strictly privately held you know homeowner scenarios to more community spaces maybe stewarded by community groups churches NGOs that kind of thing and then i do think i mean i i finished being directly involved in the hub in like 2018 but in those last few years before the handover and and the new team has been doing great stuff as well we were starting to figure out like how can we do even more on more public land and and there was a moment even in like 2011 12 13 where several of us were involved in at the time the city of portland mayor had a had a food initiative and there was an urban ag subcommittee and we you know, through that process, we're able to sit down with city staff who have been super supportive to identify plots of publicly owned land around the city that might be suitable for urban ag or other, you know, community food forestry or permaculture projects. So, so I think it was going in that direction. Now today, I would say very clearly, and I, and I would have said this then as well, but I, I, I just feel super strongly that the system of private property ownership is super problematic and a vestige of you know white colonial oppression and so it's like another one of those places where we're having to figure out how to operate in a world where everyone agrees to this social construct which is property ownership we would like to just blow that up and dismantle it and yet that's not practical on a lot of levels and so how do we operate within it at the same time that we relearn re-understand what it means to be living as communities and commoning. And when I say commoning, I mean that in the sense of like David Bullier and others who have really elucidated that commoning is a thing you do. And it's absolutely not the same as public land regulated by governments. That's a different thing. Commoning is the resource base, you know, directly located community members that rely on that resource base for some aspect of their life, health, and happiness, livelihood, whatever. And it must include community-created and largely democratized patterns and practices for managing that together. So you, of course, would see this in many indigenous communities. And many European communities, you know, hundreds or thousands of years ago, were still practicing commoning too before the supremacy of property ownership took over. So, so I'm a fan of doing these projects anywhere we can and doing them with an eye toward recognizing that the system of property ownership that we have to operate within is fundamentally flawed, probably won't last forever, but it probably will outlast all of our lifetimes. And that, you know, we have an opportunity to subvert those things in some ways, adopt a more commoning approach and recenter, you know, our choices for these types of projects that that uplift equity and justice, and try to take away as best we can, try to have be a countervailing force against the a lot of the oppressive practices that came with 
property ownership and land theft. So, so I have a lot of thoughts about that. I won't go too far down that rabbit hole other than to say, yes, do, do this everywhere you can, but certainly try to adopt some ethics around equity and justice and, you know, recognition that property ownership is a flawed construct. Beautifully said. I, I couldn't agree more. I will say that I have been to the Casco Bay community garden and it absolutely is the most beautiful community garden I have ever seen. <laughs> like, especially, you know, you can just, it, there's the little like rocks that are like the seating area overviewing Casco Bay yeah. right next to it. Oh my God. I, I never want to, I go that, I go to that place and I just never want to leave. About the public common and the idea of commenting in the more like, you know, geographical or literal sense of, I, I go to school in Western Massachusetts. And so mm-hmm. there's plenty of old public commons there, the actual spaces that still exist. And sometimes there'll be really beautiful American sycamores that are there or uh, sugar maples or what have you. But mm-hmm. for the most part, it's just mowed lawn. And mm-hmm. this isn't even touching upon all of the things you just threw out there, which is, is a whole other, we could have an entirely different discussion about that, that I, I'm really on the same page with you in terms of a lot of things that you touched on. But it's just frustrating to me to see those, just the physical public common. And instead of it being planted with chestnut trees or something that could create sort of a long-term community resiliency, it's just a lawn that gets mowed three times Mm -hmm. a month and browns out in the summertime. Yeah. Well, I I think it's a testament to the fact that we live in this historical moment, you know, and have for quite a few decades now. It's, It's a complete historical anomaly for our species that we, you know, in this time and place, particularly here in New England and this culture, we don't necessarily need to rely on the proximal landscapes for our health and livelihood and nutrition and water, because so much of that is outsourced to faraway places. We don't even need to know our neighbors if we don't want to or don't think we like them or disagree with their political signs in their yard, because our social needs are met our spiritual needs are met from far away, our entertainment needs are met from far away. Like like the transactions that enrich life at arm's length in the places where we live are now are, are considered optional for a lot of people. Now that's not universal. There are still many neighborhoods and communities. Interestingly, a lot of them are, are, are new, new Americans or new arrivals to America where some of those traditional relationships to your neighbors are still intact but like the commons or the village green that you see in western massachusetts or even boston common it's like it's like this tantalizing vestige of a thing that once existed even in our own for those of us who identify as as white in our own ancestral past you know there was a time when commoning was required with your with the people around you and with the plants, animals, and beings around you in order to survive and thrive. It was the difference between life and death, whether you you were able to do commoning very well. Like humans did not evolve as a lone wolf species. We are a communitarian species. So so it's it's fascinating as a history buff myself to see like the commons and the village greens and to like long for something you know they could be dripping with food and fruit and nuts and, you know, ecosystem benefits for pollinators and joy for people. And, you know, the most common reaction you'll get from people in the area is like, well, who's going to keep, who's going to take care of it? What if people steal food? 
like we have lost the plot, folks, if that's how we think about common spaces at this point. But that's the commodification of everything that happens under this sort of capitalistic system. So we have a lot of culture change to do, and it's a multi-generational project. Agreed. I had my mic muted, but I was giggling when you uh, mentioned the, the, the people saying, who's going to take care of it? Right. <laughs> I don't want mulberries. They make a mess. <laughs> <laughs> if I had a dollar for every time I heard that. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. No, that's wow. This could be a whole a whole other episode. So it, with what the Resilience Hub, you know, is working on mm-hmm. really pulling together that sort of the solution to some of these some of these issues. Mm-hmm. In terms of, you know, we talked a lot about what was really successful. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that comes to mind that wasn't successful? Something that was maybe a failure or something that someone who's looking to create a similar sort of group in their own community should maybe not do? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't so much a failure as a, you know, experiments that maybe worked out differently to what we thought or having enthusiasm to make so many different kinds of things happen that we just didn't have the time, energy or resources to do them all. And so sometimes it was disappointing because we really wanted to get to a particular level of organizing and, you know, it's not like a high paying or high yielding field of work and a certain amount of stuff happened on a volunteer basis. But I want to be really clear that people need to be paid for their time. Like a lot of people just can't volunteer. And I totally honor and respect that. And a lot of my mentors in the world would would say to me in the early days, like, I'd love to volunteer, but I have to feed my babies. And so you know, how are we going to organize this in a way that meets people's needs? So I think not so much a failure, but that that desire to get to a point where we could carry on the operations of the Resilience Hub in a way that could meet people's needs to like literally pay their bills. You know, we were so busy doing the stuff we love doing and we were on the brink of figuring out like, what's what's the model? for making this work. I didn't get to stay on long enough to to like go to that next level with the group. And in fairness, it was time for me to got out of the way in fairness, because there's some things that I'm good at and there's tons of things I'm not at all good at. And I didn't want my personal ego ever to be involved in the longevity of the hub. So, So I feel like the folks that took over organizing and got involved in the board and the subsequent staff there have been doing a great job of reimagining what kind of models could work. And and they're still working that out. It's constantly evolving and the world is evolving so quickly. But I would say if there was one challenging piece for me was I just didn't get enough time with my colleagues there and community members there to really crack that nut around how to properly structure a group like this so that it could hold both the creativity and the openness and the multitudes of people that could be involved in different kinds of ways, but also the core organizing team could meet their, you know, most important needs for livelihood and support. I mean, we did a modest job, but we we were only scratching the surface, I think, of what was possible. So yeah, I think that's probably not uncommon in the world of community organizing and, you know, group, community groups, it's, you know, not my strength, perhaps. So that's 
for the best that there was a really good succession to to new people that could take the resilience hub in some new directions and check out some new structures and ways of being. That's really the main thing that I would say came up for me. Gotcha. Yeah, no, that all that all makes a lot of sense. So I personally am a, a big plant nerd, and I feel like everybody who's involved in mm-hmm. uh, permaculture things that have, has a, some origin related to plant nerdery. I'm wondering if there were any specific plants or any one plant that really brought people together, like something that it's maybe this is a hard question because I don't have this. It's not like there's mm. one plant that like I can be like, oh, like I give it away to all my friends and I uh, every time they come over. Well, actually, maybe there is actually if there was one for me, I, I might say it was walking onions. When people when I give tours of you know my backyard food forest, people are like, whoa, what are these? They're onions that create onions on top. And then I chop some and give them to them and they bring them home and they proliferate and then. Also, maybe Cuban oregano because it's it grows like a weed and it's an annual, but people Ooh. can overwinter it and keep it as a, a house plant. And you know, years later, I, like three years ago, I, I grew a ridiculous amount of Cuban oregano and then made a bunch of cuttings and gave them away as Christmas gifts or something along those lines. And then now, years mm-hmm. later, it's like I get photos of everybody's Cuban oregano plant being this like completely covering up half of their deck or just growing gangbusters. And so that's been really special for me in terms of being able just to kind of keep in touch with friends who I completely forgot that I gifted on this plant. And I was, I'm wondering, yeah, if there's if there was anything, whether it was cultivating a specific plant or plants or in a more of a culinary fashion of something that really kind of stands out in those potlucks that really brought people together and can kind of be like a marker of something that still stands today as a really important facet of all that connection. Oh my gosh, this is a huge topic. <laughs> so many plants, but I, I will pick a couple, maybe Michael, just to say that they came up a lot in the lore of the group. And I will preface that by saying one of the absolute most popular events that we did on an annual basis at the Resilience Hub was our annual plant swap. The plant swap happened usually like the first weekend in May up here in Maine you might do it somewhere else depending on where you're listening from but it was the time of year where everyone in the group would you know we'd know it was coming the the tension would 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 build the excitement would build on the meetup site the event had a place where we could have some dialogue hey who's looking for this who wants this hey I've got some of this I'm going to bring these six things and it would just be crazy and it only lasted 90 minutes And the only rule was no money changes hands and you can't leave any plants behind that you brought with you. We'd set up in a big parking lot in the East Bay side in Portland. It would be like hundreds of people descending on, you know, card tables and folding tables and blankets, swapping plants and swapping the stories that go with the plants. So that's almost as important as the plants themselves. So still to this day, I'll walk around in my yard and be like, oh, this hoblitzia comes back every year. We make salads from it. It throws seed everywhere. It climbs 20 feet up the side of this trellis. I got that from Aaron Parker and I got the one next to it from Greg Martin. And it seems like together, they love this spot on the south facing side of this deck even though it's not shady. And, you know, so it it develops its whole story and its whole history. And it's like part of the family now, but it started with Aaron Parker and Greg Martin. Another example is Dystania pig plant, which is a million pig plants. 
fixed yeah. grand salary type plan perennial. It has so many different names. Yes, that's the one where it all started from Jack Cortez at Mafka, starting to hand out pieces of this plant to all of us whenever we would visit or he would come down to the plant swap or whatever. We all know that, you know, we all have it now, but it all started with Jack Cortez and his story about how he discovered it and where he learned about it. And we pass on the lore in the way that like folk musicians say, oh, I got this tune from so-and-so back in the day. And like, we are all like that with our plants. The last one that I'll mention is a fairly mundane plant, but I mention it because of the stories and the connectivity that it's created. And that is grapes. In 2006, at the very first work party that the group ever had here at my house in April of that year, we planted three tiny, tiny little bare root grapevines that we got from Fedco as part of this work party. And now... They are the most incredible structure over this 20 by 24 south facing deck. I usually harvest like 80 pounds of fruit per year to make jelly and juice, the shade, the birds' nests. But the reason why it's important to me is because every single year for the plant swap, we would take prunings and root them as we were learning plant propagation, one of the skills we really tried to share with people. And we'd bring this particular grapevine, you know, many, many little pots to the plant swap. And now there's like dozens of people in the southern main area who have these arbors and decks and pergolas covered with the exact genetic replica of the grapevine I have on the back of my house. And I see their pictures on social media, just like you said, with the plants you've given away. And it's like, it's relationships, it's care, it's skills, but it's like the genetics are moving around, the experiences and the joy, how, learning how to can the juice together. So it's like from that one little rooted plant comes untold numbers of benefits, which I think has a permaculture principle in there somewhere. But yeah, there's there's dozens and dozens of those to the point where We've swapped so many plants and so much like genetic plant material across the group over the years that it's like pieces of us are spread all over the place, you know, in public, private, and and even corporate settings at this point. So it's exciting to see how those plants have been getting around after all these years. I will say that when visiting Portland area and almost every landscape that I that I visit, I'm always wondering like, was this something that like the result of <laughs> you know like it's, I went... it's hard to say like the ripple effects are beyond what anyone any of us have known I mean we we it started in 2005 so what is that I'm losing track 17 years of people doing stuff together that's a legal human that's that's a <laughs> it grown. is it, it can actually like you know almost vote <laughs> One of the spaces that I had that feeling in was, uh, in, I think it's in Freeport. There's an Audubon up that mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. And there's a community garden there where I was like, there's a Lovage and there's rhubarb and there's all these perennials. And maybe they were some of the more common perennials, but even still comparatively to a community garden in Connecticut, it's just like tilled land, no covered soil, only the expected tomatoes and peppers and whatever else and just no perennials on the borders or edges of things and so going to and and, okay maybe I'm wrong in that assumption maybe I just haven't visited every single garden space in Connecticut my apologies to any Connecticut listeners who might have a community garden like that and I just haven't been there but 
yeah, no, the, the, it just seems like the uh, the space is up there. There's just the resilience hub has sort of bled out into the greater community of people who maybe didn't weren't ever even involved and just saw their neighbor community gardener doing something that they could replicate. I don't know. Yeah, it's quite possible. I mean, when I think about the fact that by the time I finished up at the hub and handed that over, there were like 3000 members and we had we had convened like over 800 events since the inception and some people were around for the whole time some came and went i know personally at least three community gardens gardeners from the falmouth garden that you mentioned at audubon that were part of the group those people came to permablitzes they learned things they saw things it would be impossible for them not to take some of that learning or some of the plants from the plant swap back to their community garden at Audubon or wherever else they were gardening. So so it's like both intentional and unintentional system change, I think, happens when you go beyond just the tangible skills of how to grow a plant to modeling how to care for community. It's exponential at that point. Yeah, no, it really sounds idyllic. Getting back to sort of the the foundations of how you know, and maybe I'm pushing on this too much, but like, mm-hmm. how do I make this happen here? In Maine or in that area of Portland, mm-hmm. Maine, lots of people already have sort of this mindset of being totally on board with climate resiliency. And, you know, as you mentioned, MAFCA has is what mm-hmm. like the oldest organization, which maybe we should just define what MAFCA even is for listeners, that a lot of people just have something to, to build off of, you know? Yeah. And so the, the question becomes for someone who doesn't have that pre-established sort of greater understanding where most of everyone is on board, even before they realize they're on board, you know, mm-hmm. like, where do you go? What do you do? Yeah, no, I mean, MAFCA, I mentioned a little bit earlier, is Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association. And so each of the, of the New England states, other New England states would have a NOFA a chapter which is, you know, the Organic Farmers Association. Some of them do a better job at incorporating content for gardeners than others, but NOFA's a play, you know, Connecticut NOFA is is certainly alive. And there are people down there from Connecticut who came up to Maine for our permaculture courses or came to Boston for our permaculture courses. So, so garden clubs, some of them are focused more on the ornamental and conventional gardening, but some of them are looking at more ecological practices. There are groups at colleges and universities that you can partner with. It's basically like, who are my affinity networks that already exist? Are there food co-ops? Like, what are there CSAs? Like, what, where are the people that might be interested in these kinds of things already connecting? And can I somehow partner in those places in a way that expands the network of connectivity you know, back when I was giving a lot of presentations about how to organize groups, and and I don't want to over-romanticize this. I mean, some people would come to the group who maybe didn't come with the best of intentions, or maybe they had their own life challenges that made them hard to get along with. So, you know, there's always dealing with challenging scenarios with individuals, and there's some skill necessary for managing that so that, you know, it doesn't poison the chalice, so to speak, for everyone else. But I do think that there are a certain set of key ingredients for for getting started and organizing that, you know, your mileage may vary, but I I feel like they were really important for us. And they, in theory, as more and more people wake up to the needs of our time, 
in terms of climate resilience and, you know, the brittleness of our food supply chain here in New England, because, you know, only 10% of the food we eat in New England is actually produced in New England. That's an extremely vulnerable system. And more and more people are going to wake up to that. But I would say in terms of community organizing around food forestry, permaculture and related topics, having a slow, steady and consistent activity was really important in the early years. So having just having people know that there was going to be a meetup of some sort every whatever, every month or every two months. And don't just say like the July meetup. You ha there has to be a piece of interesting content like July meetup and movie night or July meetup and guest speaker on on heirloom tomatoes like people remember people show up for the content they stay for the experience so having a consistent and you know never is the calendar empty in other words of something happening in the future making sure that events are are accessible to people. So there's always something that's free. There's always something where it's like a nominal or by donation. Some things might be more expensive. Some people can pay for that. There might be a sliding scale or maybe there's a sponsor that can help defray the cost. Always hosting and always doing hospitality. How many meetings have people gone to in the world where they don't know anyone, they're taking a risk, but they're interested in the topic. They're maybe a little nervous. They come in there's already some people there. No one says hello. No one greets them. No one welcomes them. Like that's bad hosting. I, I feel like I grew up where you take care of anyone that walks in the door. And I apply that to my professional life as well. So hosting and hospitality are absolutely critical skills. And that art of hosting stuff that I talked about earlier is highly recommended. So, and just lots of different kinds of content, some about plants, some about other things, compost, you know, whatever. I'm sure you can, you know, whoever's thinking about community organizing around permaculture, food forestry, and the like will realize like there's a pretty unlimited palette of content. And giving people in the community a platform to talk about what they love is, is not that hard. And just supporting people and valuing the wisdom and skills that everybody brings to the table. So those are just some of the real important key ingredients for us. Slow, steady, consistent, mix it up, accessible, and democratized. Like, what do you all want to learn? What do you want to teach? What's your skill? You know, what do you, what do you offer? What do you request? And just, you know, getting to know people and truly valuing them was, those were the most important things. So I guess I'll, I'll set up a meetup group for uh, locally foraged herb cocktail night and we'll just see how it goes. <laughs> You never know. You never know. Slow and steady. Like I said, I don't know what platforms are the best these days. Meet, Like I said, Meetup was the only game in town back then, really. I do want to say that when Facebook came on the scene and Facebook events came on the scene as an organizing tool, online organizing tools all started to tank because the culture of RSVPing on Facebook really only meant maybe. It meant like, yeah, I'm kind of interested in this topic, but that doesn't mean I'm going to show up. So that there may be a need to think about like, what are the organizing tools? And also not everyone speaks English and not everyone's online. So like, how do we also, you know, I should have maybe added this to the challenges question you asked earlier. One that we never did crack was getting to the point where we were organizing in a way that wasn't just people who were online and speaking English. Like we needed to expand our accessibility even in those ways. So 
that would be something if I were organizing from scratch today that I would be taking into under serious consideration is accessible organizing platforms to bring permaculture people together in a meaningful way, you know, without just relying on the interwebs. And, you know, expanding the bilingual sort of side of things also expands people's backgrounds. And, you know, down the street from uh, my parents' house is a uh, a gentleman from Sri Lanka who builds his community garden space in a completely different way and grows all sorts of gourds and melons and things that nobody else is growing. And he is by far the most interesting person to talk to yeah. in that space. So seriously, that would be my first guest speaker. And, and even, you know, something that I've considered is, you know, public libraries and how, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of, a lot of public libraries are coming around to having seed to seed libraries and, and getting donations from, different organic seed companies and sort of that being a starting point for a lot of people. Yeah, libraries are great, great partnering opportunities for this. Absolutely. Honestly, I feel like a big part of the work of of those of us involved in permaculture, food forestry and related practices is this idea of like, we're building the other sidewalk, even before a lot of people know they're ever going to need it. And, and the sidewalk they're walking on is, is maybe crumbling out from under their feet. And that's not a judgment. They're busy feeding the kids and keeping a roof over everyone's head if they can. But for those of us who are able, like, just keep going. Just keep going. Because in time, what you will have been building, not alone, but with others who find you and you find them, is going to be really, really important to a lot more people than even know you exist right now. So I guess I would say, like, have a stout heart with this, because what you can imagine right now is probably very different than what's really possible. And I bet amazing things are going to emerge in so many community, so many communities across our whole region. And those of us who can get the nuggets of those going are going to be doing a really valuable service to the future. Well, that seems like a really fantastic place to end things. I feel, sorry, I feel like I'm tearing up. Uh, (laughs) No, thank you, Lisa. This has been absolutely incredible. Generally around this time, we ask if our guests would like to promote anything in terms of what they're working on now or any um, organizations that people should check out, anything like that. Obviously the Resilience Hub is one to check out, which people can Mm -hmm. find on meetup.com and also on Facebook, I believe. But if there's anything else, Mm -hmm. I would just mention that here where I live in Maine, in occupied Wabanaki territory, there's some amazing projects. Wabanaki Reach, which does amazing education around a lot of the indigenous folks who are still here, still hard at work, still working on food sovereignty and food ways. Also, Nibizun, N-I-B-E-Z-U-N, Penobscot land is doing such good land-based work around traditional ways. Eastern Woodlands Rematriation Project as well. Southern New England Farmers of Color Collective is really getting off the ground. Uh, And then the Northeast Farmers of Color Land Trust or People of Color Land Trust. So there's just so much great work happening for those of us who are able to be in support and solidarity with those efforts. Seek them out and support them, either with time, dollars, energy, whatever skills and gifts you have. Well, thank you again, Lisa, for joining us. And listeners, if you made it this far, thank you for tuning in and we'll see you next time.